1 John 5, 6-12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son, whoever has, the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in uh, prayer as we turn to God's word? Uh, Father, we want to simply ask this morning that you would open up our eyes to the greatness of your son, Jesus, that we might see him more clearly. And that by seeing him more clearly, we would achieve the end for which John wrote, I think, most of 1 John, that we would find assurance in his name. Amen. Well, big in the area of news sources today, and perhaps bigger than real news, is fake news. And in fact, fake news may be more readily available than real news. And the difference is starting to diminish between what is real news and what is fake news. Uh, inserted into this arena is uh, satire, these, these news sites that bring in uh, news, that, but do it in a joking way. One of my favorites is, is Babylon Bee. You can check out their uh, uh, titles to their articles. are often some, something that is worth your, your reading every now and then. And they, they actually, their kind of subtitle, their Babylon Bee, their subtitle is Fake News You Can Trust. You know? And what's funny about these satire sites like Babylon Bee, I've seen this with Babylon Bee, some of their articles, the, the headlines that they put out is that people will, will readily receive these fake news sites as real news. And then someone has to inevitably respond like, hey, that's a joke. Calm down. You know, like <laughs> you don't have to receive that. People are all too ready to receive news from somewhere. And, and fake news might say a lot about our culture, but but it does say something about individuals, that people are ready to receive news, and, and oftentimes without verifying the, the content or without verifying the source that gives that content. As Christians, Christians, we're news people, not fake news people, not, not even news channel news people. We're the good news people. But news really matters to us. It is of the utmost importance. And, and the source and the content of that news makes all of the difference in the world to us. The difference between life and death, the difference between assurance and doubt, the difference between eternity with God and eternity without God. And John writes to make sure that his readers know the, the source of their good news. And not only the source of their good news, but he's worked meticulously to make sure that they have the right content of that good news that they would need to believe to have life. And so in 1 John chapter 5 here, John writes a little bit further to solidify, to further confirm the testimony of Jesus and to give assurance that the one who has Jesus 
has life. Because again, this is the right source and the right content to believe in order to have that life. Now we need to remember John's purpose for writing 1 John, at least part of his purpose, maybe even one of his primary purposes. And we find that in verse 13 where he says that I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes to his audience so that they might have assurance about the life that they have in Christ. The assurance that John speaks of is assurance that is deeply rooted in the reality of faith. It's not assurance apart from faith. I know that seems simple, but it's it's so helpful to know that the the assurance that he seeks to bring is tied to, uh, interconnected with genuine faith in the real Jesus, the one that he had seen and heard. Now, John writes to a group of people that, that had been together and had lost some. Some had left. They didn't remain with them. And John says they didn't remain because they weren't really of us. But these were people they lived life with. These were people they trusted. These were friends of theirs, people they gathered around the table with. They, they had had relationship with them. And some of them had left. And that not only did they leave and did they leave quietly, but, but what happens is they leave and then they start speaking all sorts of things. Start saying things about Jesus and the gospel. Start saying things about the fellowship that they once had and that they have something different now and better, including what we find in chapter 2, verse 22. John says, who's the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Again, likely some that had left are claiming this. They're denying that Jesus is the Christ. And he says, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Or if you look in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So again, it's highly probable that there are some people claiming to be from God, but denying Jesus Christ, that he's come in the flesh. And so this is the, the context for which John starts writing in 1 John chapter 5. Knowing that context helps us understand why John seeks to assure the, ra- the readers the way he does in these verses. Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. He says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Now, John, up to this point, has not gone to any real lengths to argue Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, God in flesh, outside perhaps maybe the introduction where he says, hey, that Jesus that I proclaimed to you, the one I'd seen and heard, like that's the real one, there's life in his name, maybe we could include that, but outside of that, he hasn't tried to undergird or give a foundation for saying that Jesus is the Christ. He's just kind of assumed it, he's written from that angle. Now, he probably did do that when he first gave them the gospel. He probably did describe to them, here's why we think that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but he hasn't done that yet. But he has said that if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, the one who's come in the flesh, then you're a liar and you're not from God. But he hasn't laid out his case for why his side is right and that side is wrong. And it seems that he starts to do that now. In order to assure them of their life in Christ, to give them the assurance they need of of the source and the content of the gospel, John argues for the divine personhood of Jesus, that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God. And so that's his goal as he combats whatever those who were outside of them were claiming now. He is trying to show that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God. And here's how he does it. He says that he came by water and blood. So whatever we say about water and blood, we need to know that water and blood are working to show that Jesus came in the flesh, that he's the divine person, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. That is what John is aiming to show. Now, now what does then water and blood mean? I think that we need to make a humble admission that the original audience would have likely readily understood water and blood and the reference to water, water and blood with some clarity that is lost on us today. And so there's all sorts of different options for what people think about what it means that Jesus came by water and the blood. Some think that the water and the blood are references to baptism and the Lord's Supper, being kind of the, the two sacraments given to the church as an ongoing witness that Jesus is the Christ. I think that that one is strange. It's strange to refer to the Lord's Supper as blood, so that one doesn't seem to fit. Uh, so that's one option. Some point it to the rites of the law from the Old Testament, that you would be cleansed and your sin would be removed by water and blood. They were both cleansing and removal of sin in that way. But I don't know that that would have been the, the most readily uh, thought of thing for the audience. It was that would be the first thing that would have been natural for them when they hear water and blood, would they have heard, oh yeah, the rites of the law. I'm not sure that it would have been. Some think about the spear thrust. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross, John writes of this, when Jesus is on the cross, the centurion comes and he, he, he puts his spear in his side and, and what comes out? Water and blood. And that seems like a, a good reference or you have water and blood together and John wrote it. But I think that there's a few weaknesses to that. The, the one is that here John says he came by water and blood. That doesn't seem to fit the, the the cross and water and blood flowing from his side with the word by or through. And later, you know, he says here, not by water only. So he's emphasizing something else, like not by water only, but by water and blood. And again, that doesn't maybe seem to fit the spear into the side of Jesus at the cross. I think that the most likely, probably that the one that is being referenced here is Jesus's baptism as water and Jesus's death as blood. Now, now, water, being a reference to Jesus' baptism, um, would have been one that would have come to mind almost immediately, I think, to his audience. And as opposed to the spear thrust where water and blood flowed, I mean, you could truly say by baptism, Jesus came by this. He came through baptism, blood. Jesus, in, in chapter 1, verse 7, it said that the blood cleanses us. Uh, it's speaking of his, his sacrificial death. That, that takes away sin and the guilt of sin. So that one's easy to go to the cross with the blood uh, as a propitiation for sins, referring to Jesus as Jesus' death on the cross. But here's what both water and blood, if we're speaking of Jesus' baptism and death, here's what they do. They point to Jesus' unique identity. They, they show Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. They show Jesus as God in the flesh. Here's the, the baptism of Jesus. Do you remember what happened as he enters into the waters? John, he sees the, the heavens ripped open, the, the uh, dove descends, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, and he hears a voice. This is my, what, beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So there's this unique attestation to Jesus being the Son of God as, as John baptizes him and he enters into his public ministry. So we see him there. That doesn't happen every time that John baptizes somebody. He baptized lots of people and no doves fell down and, and no voices sounded from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son. It happened once with the one that John said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it points to Jesus' unique 
identity. At the cross, we, we see in the middle of the day, the whole place go dark as Jesus is dying on the cross. We, we hear of, of the temple veil ripped in two, top to bottom, not just like a little stitch here and there, top to bottom ripped when he dies. There's this earthquake, and indeed, even a centurion, someone who had been a Gentile, who had been around these events, what does he say of Jesus once he dies? He says, this is the Son of God. So John's emphasis, I think, perhaps gives a clue, because he says Jesus came not by water only, but by water and the blood. So there is one early heresy that distinguished, distinguished between Jesus, the person, and the Christ, the Messiah. And, and this is early church history, they would say that the Christ came upon Jesus when he was baptized. And it didn't seem like there was any issue with that, right? Like that seems to be totally acceptable to most. But that he departed from Jesus before he was crucified. So he wasn't the Christ from water to blood. He was the Christ, and then the Christ left him uh, somewhere before the cross. So no problem with, with baptism. The problem is with the cross, and it makes sense. That, right, Paul says that the, the cross is a stumbling block. It, it looks like folly. And so, yeah, it makes sense that the, out of the water and the blood, that yeah, that would be the one we'd want to take off the board if we could, because you, messiahs don't die. Christ don't die. God doesn't die. And so let's make sure we, we think about this and, and find a way to get to him to not be Christ as he is dying. And so I think maybe John is, is pushing back against some of those maybe early arguments, maybe those exact arguments from, from some people that had left his audience and saying Jesus came by water and the blood, not the water only. He wasn't just the son of God in his baptism. He was the son of God in his death, in his sacrificial death. The, the water and the blood, they, they bracket Jesus' earthly ministry. And you see it all in this frame, all in this lens of saying Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God from first to last. He is the divine person. The birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus, we know that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, God in flesh. And he was vindicated as such in the resurrection. God died, but, but man, God raised him to life again, showing that, yes, this was truly the Christ that was on the cross. Now, here's what I don't think we should do here is get too hung up on water and blood and thinking about those minutely and miss the bigger point that, that John is trying to get us at. And John is trying to affirm Jesus. He truly is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the one who came in flesh. Because to be off on this is to be off on Christianity, is to be off on the clear teaching of the Bible, is to be off, as John's getting ready to go on and say, on eternal life. And so this is of utmost importance. And John here again seems to emphasize the blood, the death of Jesus. Now, the arguments in 2,000 or so years have, have changed. They're different now. But let's just ask, how, how often is the death of Jesus the, the actual issue? The, the problem and the, the, the issue that people raise about Jesus? The thought that God would have to die... I mean, it truly is a stumbling block and folly still. The thought that one would have to die for my sins to be forgiven, it exposes, when we say that, it exposes everybody as sinners. 
those that have a sinful status before God. Is that not something that is in the crosshairs of everyone that doesn't like Christianity? One dying for another, that's okay, we're good with that. That seems heroic. We actually herald those things. If one would die in the place of another, but one dying for another's sins, that's where we can take issue. If someone has to die for my sins to be forgiven, well, that all of a sudden is, is a little bit more offensive. Does someone have to bleed because my sins are that bad? Because I'm a sinner? And indeed, that's what's at stake in, G, in John saying that Jesus came as water in the blood. The salvation of sinners is at stake in the issue of saying that the Christ came, bled, and died. I think John Stott says it rightly with what's at stake when he says that if the Son of God did not take to himself our nature in his birth and our sins in his death, he cannot reconcile us to God. If he didn't come by water and the blood, we cannot be reconciled to God. We remain in our sins and are most to be pitied. But God himself testifies that Jesus came by the water and the blood, and he testifies to this in the person of the Holy Spirit so that believers will know Jesus rightly. Look at verse 6 again. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. It's, it's not just that we lay down this argument of the water and the blood and then that settles the issue and everyone's going to be convinced because we can tell you he's the Christ at the baptism. Did you hear what I say? You heard the voice from heaven? Oh, he's the Christ at, at the cross. Didn't you hear what I said? There was an earthquake and all this stuff. See, that settles the issue. It doesn't settle the issue. The Spirit has to testify. And the Spirit comes and testifies. And how does the Holy Spirit testify? Well, in 1 John, I'm going to give us, I think, three ways that 1 John tells us. The Holy Spirit testifies to the truth, the veracity of, of the person of Jesus, who he is, his unique identity, and what he has done and what he has accomplished. Look in chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. You're, you're seeing and you're testifying to the truth of who Jesus is, and because of who he is, he can actually be the Savior of the world, and it's by the Spirit inside you that allows you to say that. And he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so the, the Holy Spirit is testifying that the truth of the gospel, of the good news of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. The second way is that the Holy Spirit testifies to the truth of the apostles' words. That these were the men who handed down to us what they had seen and heard regarding the person of Jesus and what Jesus had done, the person and work of Jesus. And so we read in chapter 4, verse 6. John lays out this test for us. We are from God, I think, again, speaking as an apostle, and whoever knows God listens to us. That's a pretty big test. You're, you're going to listen to us. He has assurance and, and a lot of confirmation that saying, like, our message is the right one to say that thing, to say that. That's audacious if he doesn't have that confidence. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever's not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the spirit is testifying to the word. To, to what the apostles had handed down in the scripture. So he testifies to the truth of it, and he does to the truth of it in the word. And the Holy Spirit's testimony then 
is a testimony of truth of the person and work of Jesus, which is what the water and the blood pointed to. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5, it says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And so the Spirit is coming alongside, looking at those events of water and blood, and testifying to the fact that those things really happened to the Christ, the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh, and they happened to Him. They're saying, that is true. And so John says the three stand or fall together. You can't take one part and deny others, as I think John's opponents were doing. Likely what they were claiming was that they had been given some special knowledge, some insight from the Holy Spirit, some special anointing, and then they were contradicting what John had said about Jesus. And John is saying, you can't do that. These three agree, they rise and fall together. And so if you're going to say, I have an anointing of the Spirit, and then deny that Jesus came by water, and not by water only, but by water and the blood, then you're a liar. That's what John would say. He didn't use liar here. He used liar in a couple other places, so I'm just going to insert it here again for him and say, liar, if you say that. (laughs) Thank you. How can the people say amen unless they understand? And that's part of the amen that they're saying. John has already roundly rebuked their confession of Jesus as someone being other than the Christ. And he adds to that here with the water and blood and the Holy Spirit. They all agree, and they agree, John is saying, with him, right? They agree with what I've said about Jesus concerning who he is. Now, in a court of law, even in the Old Testament, what did you need to, to make the, a matter of truth like substantial? What did you need to, to uh, establish something as true? You needed two or three witnesses, and here we have three witnesses. I mean, we got, we got powerhouse witnesses here, water, blood, and spirit. And, and John, what he's trying to do with this and saying that they agree is he's trying to further solidify further confirm the the truthfulness, the veracity of the gospel that he proclaimed concerning the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he has done, what he has done. And that the three of these agree is significant weight, especially because the Holy Spirit doesn't just testify to this out there somewhere, but he testifies inwardly as well. In chapter 2, verse 27, This is the kind of the third way the Spirit testifies. But but the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. And so the Spirit is, is testifying inwardly that these things are true, of who Jesus is, of what He has done, and what He's accomplished. The, the water and the blood, they, they point to external events, historical events that you could look at, that bracket Jesus' ministry. But the Holy Spirit takes that and, and pushes it down even further, internally, to who Jesus is, so that He testifies with our spirit about the truthfulness of what Jesus has done and who he is. And so when John says that they all agree about the person and work of Jesus, those who have the spirit within them are saying, yes, amen. Of course he came by water and the blood. Of course it wasn't water only, it was water and the blood, because they have the spirit in them that would stir them up to say yes and amen for that very reason. And so they look at the water and the blood, those who have the spirit, And by the power of that Spirit in them, they see, when they look at water and blood, they see, that's the Christ. The the Christ was baptized. Uh, The Son of God died. God took on flesh, and he had this earthly ministry. So the question for us is, do we agree with the three? Are we clear on the person and work of Jesus? 
Do you believe that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God in flesh, the divine person? I love Advent. It's a, it's a great time for intentional remembering of what Jesus is on. His coming to earth, born as a baby, laid in a manger. It's good for us to, to take time to intentionally look back and remember that significant event. But my fear is that what it should be a time of intentional remembering can often become a time of, of kind of passively assuming. And the most significant part of the story of, of the birth of Jesus that we look back in Advent is not that a baby was born, or that the baby was laid in a manger, or that there was a star, or that there were shepherds. All, all those things are great and parts of the story that need to be remembered. The most important part of that story are not that thing. If, Joy at the, at the birth, that's great. There, we had joy when we had a baby four times. We've had joy. Like there's, births are time of joy. But Jesus' birth can be a time of good news, of great joy for all people because of the identity of that baby. The most significant part is not that this, there was a baby laid in a manger, but the baby laid in a manger was the Christ, the Son of God. And the good news is that he wouldn't remain a baby. If he remains a baby, that's not good news of great joy for all people. And he didn't just come and, and was baptized by water and, and was content at that point, right? Have I shown everybody? Do you hear from heaven? This is what God is like. Do you see it in me? All right, I'm out. Didn't do that. There's good news of great joy because he didn't just identify with sinful man in his baptism, but he died in the place of sinful men in his death. And so again, let's think about it. During this time of intentional remembering, are, are we passively assuming that we know the identity of Jesus? Are we clear on him? Do we agree with the water and the blood and the spirit? And here's what John goes on to say. That, that these three, that the water and the blood, that they're, they're testifying, and the spirit testifies, that, that this testimony is the very testimony of God. Verse 9 he says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. John is saying, man, if, if two or three is enough in a human court to receive something as true, to establish the truth of a matter, then I've got more than enough. But then he pulls out the... the, the you believe men, two or three agree, but if you believe men, shouldn't you agree that this, this is the very testimony of God? You should receive this testimony from God. Surely that should be received. But he writes that to an audience that is being tempted to receive the testimony of men that are all too ready to move off to those who have already left and agree with them about what they've said about Jesus. Maybe it would make their lives easier. Maybe they'd be back with some of their friends that they had had before. Maybe they wouldn't face so much backlash from people around them. But they're being tempted to go to these people who are claiming something different about Jesus. And they're all too ready to receive that news. And so John says, don't receive their news. You should receive the news from God, the testimony that's from God. And that's what he's laying out for them. And so John argues from the lesser to the greater to say, you need to receive God's testimony uh, Instead of any man's, receive God's. 
You remember the story that John told of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? There's this great conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, and the Samaritan woman is struck by all that Jesus has said to her. I mean, she is I mean, dramatically changed. And she goes back to her city, and she starts telling them that what Jesus has done. He said, he told me everything that I ever did. And what does it say in John chapter 4, verse 39? The Samaritans from that town believed because of the woman's testimony. She had told them, come and see. And they believed because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two more days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And that's what John wants for his readers. Not just to receive his word or another person's word, but to receive the very word of God, to hear from God, to say, no, we heard you, but what we heard was him. We, we actually believed because of what he said. We heard from him. And evidence that, that, that they had received the message from God is believing in Jesus. And notice, even here with the Samaritans in John chapter 4, not just believing in Jesus in general, believing something specific about Jesus. There's content to who Jesus is. They believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's not just anybody. He's not just another Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. And John is moving towards those same kinds of ends. So how do we know if we've received the testimony of God? John says, by believing in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, then you have received the testimony of God. Again, not just believing in general, believing specific things about what who Jesus is and what he has done. That is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the divine person, as confirmed by the water and the blood and the Spirit, all agreeing to who Jesus is. So John now, having, having kind of laid out before his audience this case that helps solidify and confirm the person and work of Jesus, John moves towards a response. All right? We've confirmed the testimony, now let's respond to the testimony, and that's where he does, moves in 1 John 5, verse 10. It says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has made, that God has borne concerning his Son. So again, belief in the Son of God, belief in Jesus as the Christ, is absolutely the end for which John has been writing. For in the end for which John has been uh, giving this argument to them. So again, whatever we say about water and blood, this is what he wants. Receive the testimony of God, believing in Jesus. It's what he desires for his readers. The water and the blood, they, they speak, they, they talk so that we might firmly believe in Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And those who believe have the spirit in them internally, bearing witness with their spirit that they are children of God. And whoever doesn't believe, he says in verse 10, has made God to be a liar, which is pretty stark words. Now, John is not, he is not shy about calling people liar. Again, he, like, he's used that several times throughout this uh, writing of 1 John. He has no issue with handing that out to people. But now he's saying he's putting it on the lips of those who have not received the testimony of God, who have not believed in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and he says, they're the liars. They're the ones who are calling God a liar. 
Now that's a tough thing to say. John doesn't treat unbelief in Jesus, unbelief again in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, as some sort of passive kind of unfortunate disposition. He doesn't treat unbelief as some sort of like neutral place in the world. Like he, maybe they're just waiting to hear the, the right news or a better argument or whatever. He doesn't treat unbelief that way. He describes unbelief here very vividly as active rejection, actively against God and his testimony, so as if to make God a liar. So he's saying that if you're not believing in Jesus, you're actively living as if God is a liar. Rejecting Jesus and living in unbelief is rejecting God and his testimony, which is, again, to live as if God's a liar. So in other words, you can't be okay with God and reject Jesus. You can't be okay with God and reject specific things about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. If you say, I'm good with God, and Jesus came by water, I don't know about blood, then you are calling God a liar. That's what John says here. Now, most of us don't see unbelief in that way, as if to put on our lips that we would be calling God a liar. I think most look at unbelief as some sort of, again, fairly neutral state that you could be in, perhaps just kind of waiting to be convinced by God that somehow if God would come along in our waiting of unbelief and, and finally and fully show us, give us a sign, waiting for a voice, if I could just hear him, if he'd tell me, then I'd, then I'd believe, or he'd give me this sign, and hey, if you, if you do this, then I'll for sure believe in you. And, and we think of unbelief a little bit like that, in almost like a neutral state. We can be a little bit like the Pharisees, though, who came to Jesus demanding a sign from him. And Jesus said to them, and it's not the good people that demand the signs. It's the unbelieving hearts, the hard-hearted people that demand a sign. We can be like Philip, one of Jesus' own disciples, who in John chapter 14, after Jesus just said words that we probably all have heard, that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Philip has the audacity to say, hey, Jesus, why don't you show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Man, we can be a little bit like that in our unbelief. If you do this and give me the sign, then I'll believe. If you show me the Father, then I'll believe. But God has already clearly testified. And Church, God is no half-hearted witness. He's clearly testified to who Jesus is. The, the water and the blood resound, and they're saying, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in flesh. To not believe the water and blood, the testimony of God, is active rejection of God who has testified so clearly. So if there's some sort of qualification that you have, that says, if God will do this, then I'll believe. Or if God will, if I could hear his voice, then I'll believe. If I could see a sign, then I'll believe. Then you're calling God a liar. We hear his voice. Jesus was baptized. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. We see the sign. There was earthquake and darkness and the temple veil was torn top to bottom. And then he went into the tomb and rose again. We have seen and heard all that we need to see and hear. And so if there's some sort of qualification that we need before we believe, then it's not neutrality. 
It's not just waiting on God to do something. It's calling God a liar. It's living in rebellion. Belief and unbelief are are not only saying something about God, but they're consequential for us as individuals. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. The water and the blood and the Spirit matter so much because they are testifying about eternal life. These are eternal life matters. So when we're talking about the water and the blood, we need to recognize we're talking about not some trivial thing. We're talking about eternal life matters because they are testifying to something about Jesus and about who He is. Eternal life for us seems like something when we think about it, it's like it's out there. It's far off. But notice that it's not spoken of as something to be gained in the future. Notice that John talks about it not as something to be gained, something that is given, first of all. You don't go out and earn it. You don't achieve it. You can't win it by doing something right. But it's not something that's going to be gained in the future here. Of course, eternal life is something to be in the future. There's an eternal aspect to it. But what does he talk about it here? It's something we have right now. Has it. You have eternal life. If you believe in the Son, it's having and knowing and abiding in Jesus right now. It's a fellowship enjoyed with sinners and a reconciled God because of the work of Jesus, and it's enjoyed right now. It's the blessing of having Jesus as both propitiation for your sins and as advocate on your behalf with the Father. It's knowing Jesus as the one who is standing before the Father on your behalf. It's having the power through the Spirit that Jesus has given to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. That's all part of eternal life, and it's happening right now. It's life here and now with Jesus. And John affirms for us, it's only in Jesus. There's no other place you can find this. And it's given, and it's for the present life, and this life is then going to extend on out through eternity. Verse 12 says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Eternal life is not possible apart from belief in Jesus. Eternal life is not possible apart from belief in Jesus, and we need to fill in that content as John does, as the Christ, the Son of God, that this is God in the flesh. You see, it's clear from John here that it's not the loving person that receives eternal life. It's not the moral person that receives eternal life. It's the person in relation to Jesus by faith that receives eternal life. They might be moral. I hope that they are. John has something to say about that in the rest of his letter, right? They might be loving. Again, John has something to say about that. But they are for sure in relation to Jesus by faith. It's the person in relation to Jesus. Those who are moral and deny Jesus, John says, are cut off. Those who are loving and deny Jesus are cut off. Those who are really great philanthropists, great people in our society and deny Jesus are cut off. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have this one thing, the Son, does not have life life. But I don't want us to miss a beautiful word that's used a few different times in verses 10 through 12. He he confirms the testimony and he wants us to respond to the testimony, but notice this word, whoever. What a beautiful word. 
that the water and the blood, they testify, and people in Enid, Oklahoma, in 2021, can hear and by the power of the Spirit, believe in the Son of God and have eternal life. That whoever puts us into the picture. Those who have treated God as a liar in their unbelief can believe and have life. That's whoever. Those who have not lived as Jesus has lived, have denied him and rejected him in the way they've lived and spoken and loved or not loved, and now see him in the water and the blood as the Spirit testifies and believe in him are part of that whoever. Whoever. Like, there's, there's, there's no end to this. And that's true because Jesus came, because he passed through the waters, because he bled at the cross, because he rose again, because he is the Christ. Those words can ring true even now. And because that whoever is true, oh, we need to be like the disciples. In John chapter 6, Jesus said some really weird and hard things about eating flesh and drinking blood. And a lot of people that were following Jesus decided to, to not follow him anymore. Which, like, if you're going to turn around, like, that might be the turning point. He's saying weird things. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them, do you want to go too? Do you remember their response? Where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. We need to be a people who are so convinced that Jesus is eternal life that we could be able to ask that same question to ourselves. Like, where else would I go? There's no other eternal life place. There's no other person that eternal life is found in. So I'm going to stay right here. Amen. I'm going to keep saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that the water and the blood, they testify to me that that's true. The Spirit internally is bearing witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God, and I'm going to keep saying, in Jesus is life. So let's listen to John. Let's listen to the, the water and to the blood. Let's listen to the Spirit, the very testimony of God, that eternal life is found in nowhere else or no one else but in Jesus. Well, let's ask, do you have that life? Do you know Jesus? If not, John is inviting us in. You can be part of the whoever right now by looking to him and believing, by turning from sins and trusting in Jesus. If you do and can say, where else would I go? Then what we do together is we respond together by taking the Lord's Supper. This is a meal of faith. A meal of saying, this is the only eternal life place. If it weren't for the body and the blood of Jesus I would be most to be pitied on this earth because I would deserve and would receive the very wrath and judgment of God. So if you're one of the people that are saying, I don't have anywhere else to go. Jesus is all I've got. If, I, if he doesn't come through for us, then eternal life is over. Then this meal's for you. <laughs> and we want you to take it in faith and joy, knowing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that the water and the blood and the Spirit testify to us that what we are saying is true. Receive the testimony of God. Receive this meal together as family. Let's bow in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we thank you that you have drawn such a clear line in the sand. You leave us without question, without doubt, what is required to have eternal life.
And God, we know that that line is Jesus Christ. You have shown us historically, you have confirmed in us through your spirit presently, God, this truth. And I pray that your spirit would just continue to drive what we know to be true deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts and minds. God, that it would consume us, that this message would never get old to us, but that it would always be exciting, that it would always be life-giving, that it would always be motivating, not only for us to live for your glory, but for us to turn and to share this good news with others, God. We have such an opportunity in this country where we are still free to speak of this good news. And this season in particular, Lord, affords us so many opportunities to share with others who don't know you why we celebrate Christmas as a church. You came to give us what we could never obtain ourselves, God. You came to do what we could never do to take the judgment we deserved, to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we surely deserve to die, God, so that we could know you. That is true, and it will never change, and we pray that you solidify that in our minds and our hearts and cause it to overflow like wellsprings of living water, God. Just help us to be your representatives in this world. Help us to share this news with those who need to hear it. In Christ's name, amen.